denied basic freedoms and rights to African Americans that Martin Luther King inherited. Both that historical deprivation on the one hand, experienced that nurturing faith through biblical revelation on the other. And when I think about Dr. King, and I tell my students this all the time, the first day of my um, religious thought of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X class at Benedict College, Dr. King used to carry around an old bag with him wherever he went. And, uh, very similar to my beat up bag that I have here now that's almost 19 years old. And among other things, there were always three books that he always carried in that bag, no matter where he was. One of the books, as you might suspect given his schedule, was that he carried an appointment book with him in his bag wherever he went. Of course, as I said, uh, given his schedule, that is quite understanding. Uh, the second thing he carried in his bag was a publication of what he considered his favorite book, and one of my top three favorites, suggested reading to all of you if you have not read it, and he used to read this book quite frequently, and I can understand why it's easy to digest, um, and I have never seen a more accessible take on the life of Jesus, not only in terms of his impact as a son of God biblically, but from a contextual standpoint, that Howard Thurman's Jesus and Disinherited, one of the 22 books that Howard Thurman wrote. Of course, Howard Thurman was dean of chapel at Howard University for a number of years, and of course, uh, pastor one of the first interracial congregations in San Francisco in the 1950s and <coughs> 60s. Of course, early on in that book, Howard Thurman talks about the religion of Jesus Christ. And he goes into extensive detail, not just on Jesus, the figure, the son of, the God, son of God, the Christian labels that we put on Jesus, the theological categorization. But he talks about the social context that Jesus inherited, being born to a poor people, being born to a despised people, and God's decision to incarnate God's self amongst the people who were disadvantaged historically. And, of course, who were impoverished economically. It says a lot about God, about God's will, about the Christ event. And King used that book and read it religiously, no pun intended, in his many travels across the South, where, of course, death stared him in the face many times because of the civil rights movement. And, of course, the third book that Dr. King always carried around him, with him was a copy of the King James Version of the Bible very similar to this one. Um, in fact, it was a white uh, covered Bible with his initials on it, name on it, just as mine is here. And he carried that book around with him as well and read it for spiritual sustenance and comfort, not only in his home at night, but also during some of the deeper and more intense moments of the civil rights movement. So, these three books particularly the last two, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited and the King James Version of the Bible, in many ways symbolizes the theological struggle that all theologians, formal and informal, have in trying to make sure that two things are established relative to consistent and responsible theologizing. That is, of course, 
that one is true to the fidelity of the gospel and the, and, the, and the biblical revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And that one is relevant to one's contemporary situation and context. And so these two things, very important to King, and of course, as we'll see later on in the lecture, this becomes one of the reasons why theologian Paul Tillich, considered the greatest theologian of the 20th century by many, became one of Dr. King's favorite theologians, if not his favorite theologians, of course, Tillich maintaining his massive compendium, Systematic Theology, early on in that work, that there are two criteria that the theologian is always engaged in the process of dialectically, and that is proclaiming the truth of the gospel message and then making sure that that truth is impacting and wholly relevant in that theologian's generation and time. That social context and that theological context for King forms the basis of what I would like to talk with you about tonight. Obviously, the social context that King inherited in Atlanta, Georgia in the early 1930s, preceded, of course, by slavery, and of course, being born in a context of racial segregation in Atlanta, even though, of course, he was born into a middle class, what we would call a lower middle class family today. And that distinction is obliterating with the times in which we live right now for people of all races. I'll get to that later as well. Uh, but whether it was slavery or whether it was legal segregation, it was clear that this country's intent was to continue socially, economically, politically, and religiously with an, with an assault on the idea, not only on black equality, but an assault on the idea of the humanity of black people. Whether it be socially, whether it be economically, whether it be politically, and of course what we're going to deal with now tonight from a biblical and theological standpoint, even from a religious standpoint. It, it, it always shocks my students when I tell them that the first conception of what the demonic or the devil that we use and throw out so frequently in religious services today, particularly Christian worship services, was black skin, period. And that one could tell the level of one's demonism in American life by the darkness of one's skin. So the lighter you were, from a color symbolism standpoint, the closer to divinity you were, the darker you were, the closer you were to Demonism. And so this is the social context that King inherited, also too from a sociological standpoint, an assault on the aesthetic features of black people, our hair texture, our broad noses, our thicker lips. Of course, there was always, from a scholarship standpoint, an attempt on white scholars sociologically, psychologically, to, of course, equate the humanity of black people with that of lower animals, particularly gorillas, apes, and orangutans. Of course, um, I must deviate and say that even in 2010, with a sitting president we, uh, who was African-American, we see images of him, his wife, and his two girls being replaced by a monkey and an orangutan and sent out over the internet. So in that sense, that type of ill will still exists in our country, even for a sitting African-American president. So this is the, the context that Dr. King inherited and millions of other black people inherited as well. The theological context that King inherited, of course, 
was no different. White clergy and theologians were committed to the sacralizing, as I call it, of black dehumanization, a chapter I devote to in my book, White Religion and Black Humanity. And that, of course, this book that we see here, 66 books bound into one, is not, of course, the first Bible that, as African Americans, we get heading into the 19th century. The first Bible we get is one that's far thinner than this one and wrapped in paper bag wrappings. And it was referred to as a Bible Bible, or a truncated or an abbreviated Bible. What was the significance of this? Of course, Price Cobbs and William Greer, their landmark work, The Jesus Bag, in 1969, talk about the Bible Bible into some detail, not as much as I would have liked for them to have done. The Bible Bible was an abbreviated, very thin Bible that contained very little, if any, of the Old Testament. And it contained only those letters of Paul, particularly those in Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, and of course the book of Philemon, that seemed to condone slavery. And so the intent was to establish slavery as manifest destiny, as the realization from a Christian theological standpoint of the kingdom of God, and to convince both races that this is what they were experiencing on earth. So... What you had is an idea of black humanity dehumanized and, of course, sacralized at that time in the present to establish the kingdom of God on earth as having arrived. And you have a slave community that's incessantly trying to find ways to free themselves, <coughs> maintaining theologically by their actions that, of course, the kingdom of God was a future realization on earth and did not manifest itself. Enslaved. Of course, the intent was with the Bible Bible was to convince the slave community once it was, once it was agreed to by slave masters and white clergy, that of course the uh, instruction of the slaves in Christian faith was actually going to be good in the sense that it would be used as a means of social control. So if you could convince the slaves that their enslavement was ordained of God. Course, a difficult sell, sell but um, carried over well on some of our people in terms of trying to establish that the biblical revelation that seemed to condone slavery in some of these letters of Paul actually meant the enslavement of African Americans in 18th, 19th century America. Did it mean biblical slavery at that time, or did it mean the enslavement of African people, of course, in American life? And of course, we don't see a Bible as African Americans as slaves, that is the full Bible as we call it, until the early 19th century. And of course, when we look at the version that was used, of course the version that was used was in fact the King James Version. Uh, at least the Bible Bible and then of the full Bible. Of course, when we examine Paul's letters, of course, we see key passages in one whole book devoted to trying to convince slaves that their enslavement was the behest of God. We see the Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 passage, of course, that, that admonishes slaves to obey masters as you would Christ, making that, that thin distinction between, of course, the earthly master and, of course, one's heavenly master or Christ. 
course, we see color symbolism with the introduction of Jesus in white male image to solidify that image even more so and that claim even more so. The first Peter 2 passage 18 20, submit to good and both harsh masters, uh, staple part of sermons, staple part of prayers in white churches, particularly as they sought to indoctrinate not only slaves but to convince their own community of the legitimacy of the idea of slavery as an eternal institution. And of course we see 1 Timothy 6 and 1, that your masters are worthy of all honor. Of course, we not only mean heavenly master here, but your earthly master as well. And probably more so than any of the first three, we see of course uh, the book of Philemon, uh, which is the shortest book of the Bible. It's 27 verses, but one of the most frequently used uh, biblical books to solidify the legitimacy, the divine legitimacy of slavery. Of course, we have in this book of Philemon, Paul instructing a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus to actually return to his master, uh, which emboldened slave masters even more so the biblical legitimacy of slavery. What is conveniently left, was left out of the pedagogian churches about the book of Philemon is that Paul then goes to Philemon and of course tells Philemon to treat Onesimus as a true brother and equal brother in Christ. The last few verses. That teaching conveniently didn't make, it way in, make its way into the life of the church in the attempt to solidify the legitimacy theologically of slavery and more importantly, biblically of slavery. Why do I bring all of this up? I bring all of it up because... Not only the Bible, but the King James Version of the Bible itself, as you can see, comes to play a crucial role in race relations in early America. And while it hadn't reached its 400th birthday yet, it was on its way to its 200th birthday, uh, it weighed a tremendous amount of weight in terms of how we come to establish a worldview that we come to understand that God desires of us. Of course, everybody religiously is raised to do ultimately what they think pleases God. The question is, and particularly for me as a theologian, which makes this whole process so fascinating, how is it that we come to arrive at what that criteria is? That's what Christian theological reflection has been about since its inception. And why church leaders decided even back in the 4th century, the first year of the church's existence, that we needed theologians in the academy who were well-trained and, of course, who could bring about some type of objective and constructive critique to the life of the church itself. So it was a tough job that somebody had to do it then, tough job somebody has to do it now. <coughs> Ebenezer and the liberation hermeneutic, as we move closer to King's context, in segregated Atlanta, Georgia. King, no question, grew up in what one would probably consider an ideal setting to create the kind of leader he became. He grew up as and became a third generation preacher. Of course, um, his father, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., everyone referred to affectionately as Daddy King. Um, of course, married uh, King's mother, of course, and King's mother uh, and his father-in-law at the time was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. 
course, a church known for not only its social activity, but a church that sought to wed the, the truth of the Christian message with the contemporary strivings of black people to free themselves from white supremacy and segregation. And so Ebenezer was a good context for King. And of course, it was a good context biblically as well. Um, a lot of Daddy King's sermons emerged out of the Exodus narrative where we now have access to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant as black people. And of course, the Exodus narrative early on in the Bible, as we well know, is a narrative about the people being enslaved. And of course, God inaugurating, as I said when I was here last Friday, God inaugurating the movement from slavery to freedom for the Israelites and God commissioning Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And of course, this narrative emboldened and served as a source of hope and a source of faith for a lot of black people that, of course, uh, one day that, that God would also come and deliver us as well, not only beyond slavery, but to complete freedom. And so the Exodus narrative served as a key component in the biblical hermeneutical process of some black churches. And, of course, the prophets, all of the prophets, but but it, especially Amos um, and his, of course, exhortation um, that he's tired of our solemn assemblies. Of course, we have with Amos the first challenge to so-called ritualistic religion and its principal effectiveness relative to its ability to transform social conditions. Um, Amos was not questioning the power of faith to transform an individual life. But Amos was also maintaining at the behest of God that religion had more to do than just individual accomplishments and that one should not see religion as simply a wish fulfillment process in the thinking and praising of God in light of the accomplishment of individual goals. Of course, Amos was maintaining that, of course, religion has another principal component to play and that is the transformation of structural conditions that prevent people from that achievement of aspiration that, of course, ritualistic religion was maintaining was the beginning and end of the religious life. Of course, Amos maintained, of course, that he was tired of our solemn assemblies. He wanted justice to roll down like water and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream. So, of course, we hear King quote that very much in a lot of his speeches, including the I Have a Dream speech. And of course, he learned that growing up at Ebenezer. And of course, we have the Hebrew boys. Daddy King talked a lot about the defiance of the Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, defying what we now call temporal authority in lieu of the authority of a God who would deliver us. And of course, they also maintain that if our God does not deliver us, we're not going to serve yours anyway. And of course, that kind of defiance to unjust authorities. King talked about doing his life, unjust laws and unjust authority. Um, him maintaining that in a society of unjust laws, the only place for a just man or just woman to be more politically correct is jail. Um, came a lot from Daddy King's sermons on the Hebrew boys. Of course, uh, the life of Jesus itself, going back to Howard Thurman's Jesus and the disinherited that King was able to read in college and then to grad school. 
um, at Crowell's Theological Seminary at Boston University, Jesus' proclamation that I came to set liberty those who are oppressed, of course, in the Luke 4.18 passage, and of course, says to his own people that this scripture is fulfilled in your ear this day. So it, 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 it created problems for Jesus, then it creates problems for everyone who's maintained that the time for change is now ever, ever since. Uh, one of the things that King uh, was often chided for publicly during his career is that what he was doing in the way of nonviolent direct action protests was not the right time. That the timing was always off. And of course, King maintained through this proclamation here, of course, uh, although he didn't mention it a lot, it, it, it served as the foundation for him maintaining that you can never engage in a social, nonviolent, direct action campaign that is well-timed in the eyes of those who benefit from the existing situation, which means that the time is never right for this world, but it is always right in God's eyes. So in that regard, Jesus maintaining to his own people that the time is now. It was not yesterday and certainly not tomorrow. The time is now. Um, Bowie King in his public career. When he went on to grad school, there's something else that Bowie King um, served as a complement to his understanding of biblical revelation. And it was a movement referred to as liberal Protestantism. Many of you may have heard of it. But it begins at Crows and then at Boston um, University, of course, School of Theology, uh, with his reading of Paul Tillich's classic work, as I mentioned earlier, Systematic Theology. Uh, Tillich wrote three volumes, massive volumes, a 12-year span from 1951 to 1963, where, of course, not only did Tillich maintain that we must be relevant more so than we are biblical, but he also maintained, of course, that we must hold these two processes, these two poles in constant tension as we do theology. We must be concerned about disseminating the truth of the Christian message on the one hand, but we must be ultimately concerned about how we unpack that truth in the context in which we find ourselves. And while Paul Tillich was highly criticized for that view, that particular view continues to be one of the most profound theological methods of our time. And, of course, King also read Tillich's work against the Third Reich, where, of course, Tillich engages in his own contemporary fight against injustice as a German theologian, of course, challenging Hitler in the Third Reich in the 1930s in wartime Germany. And for, fortunately for him, he was able to get out and come over to the United States and teach at the University of Chicago and, of course, at Union Theological Seminary at Harvard. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another theologian in Germany, was not as fortunate. In fact, Bonhoeffer was here at Union, at Union in New York and decided to go back. That if martyrdom were his reality with Hitler, then it would be his reality. Unfortunately for him, the Allied forces liberated Europe just a few weeks to a month after Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by Hitler. <coughs> Also for King, Walter Rauschen Bush, something that was unheard of up to his time, particularly for a white theologian in the early 20th century. Uh, Rauschen Bush writes a book titled Christianity and the Social Crisis. And 
we didn't have any white theologians up to that point in America who, us, who, who sought a treatment of Christian faith and related it to the racism of his time, although Roger Bush was criticized later that he was too concerned about labor unions and the economic situation, not the racial situation enough, that he was one of the forerunners of white theologians in America who related Christian faith and Christian theology to the social crisis. Then, of course, <clears throat> 1917, his classic of theology for the social gospel, another book that King read, one that I recommend for my students as well, had a tremendous impact on King's social understanding <coughs> of the gospel message, not only in the life of Jesus, but throughout biblical revelation, which emboldened him in his context to struggle against racism in America. And of course, since the letters of Paul had such a tremendous impact on um, the way we thought biblically as both black and white Christians, King understood that he could not wage an effective struggle to advance the cause of humanity from a racial standpoint in American life and throughout the world until he counteracted the racist interpretations of Paul's letters. Now we're moving back in the context, even though we're talking about the Bible, where King is moving himself back into his context where he understands that he has to walk through this crucible of a new biblical hermeneutic relative to the way we come to understand Paul's letters. That there are passages in those letters that suggest that one should be non-resistant in the wake of violence. That one should turn the other cheek. Um, uh, that one should suffer passively in the name of God and in the name of humanity. Three things jump out for me in terms of how King uh, counteracted these racist interpretations. Uh, the first is his readings of Henry David Thoreau and civil disobedience that King found in Thoreau's writings how he could adhere to Paul's dictum and admonishment to be a pacifist and to turn the other cheek, per se, and at the same time engage in a form of protest that brought those in whom he was protesting against, the white racists, to a, to, a, to a confrontation with himself, a consciousness with himself in terms of how he viewed his humanity and how he viewed the humanity of black people. King said oftentimes with civil disobedience, it is designed to shame the person who you're confronting into his racist ways, hoping that it will produce a change. And so he could at the same time engage in a form of protest that could eventuate in a transformation or an obliteration of segregation laws that will enhance quality of life for black people, and at the same time adhere to Paul's admonishment to be nonviolent. The second thing, King often used a term called the zeitgeist, a term that he learned from his reading of Tillich and other German theologians. Zeitgeist means, of course, the spirit of the times. It means, for him, maximizing the moment in the spirit. <clears throat> One of the things that he also learned from reading Paul Tillich is that Paul Tillich wrote a series of sermons and he took one of the sermons to be the title of the book, and it's referred to as the Eternal Now. 
N-O-W, the, the, the eternity of the moment, the significance from a divine standpoint of the moment, and maximizing the moment in human history, which of course is encompassed in eternity, to transform human relationships. And so, in contradistinction to those who maintain that King's timing was always wrong, what time for racial equality? What time for black equality? What time for civil and human rights? King used the zeitgeist to argue, of course, that the timing may not be historically right in the mind of a racist, but it's always eternally right in the mind of God. And so in that regard, that regard King always maintained that my timing is always eternally accurate, that it always encompasses the eternal dictum of God for us to not only be the rulers and dominions of the earth, but also for us to share the earth's resources, and that in the richest country in the world, with so many resources in this world, King, of course, was not convinced that there should be one impoverished person of any race on this plan. And of course, the third thing that King did to counteract the racist interpretations of Paul's letters, the whole notion of redemption. We hear that tossed out a lot in churches. We hear that tossed out a lot in Christian theology. Of course, <clears throat> King maintained that unmerited suffering, the suffering that comes through direct action protest, through social engagement, that 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 suffering that's necessarily going to come. Of course, we saw it during the civil rights movement with many black people and some whites losing their lives. And we saw, of course, Bull Connor put water hoses, dogs on marches. And of course, we see James Clark himself beat marches back across the Edmund Pettus Bridge the first time they tried to come across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And of course, they come across successfully two weeks later. That for King, this was a necessary and inescapable process to the road of redemption, not only for black people, but for all human beings. And he understood the people who were occupying the oppressed lot to have to lead that way because those occupying the standpoint of privilege would do what was necessary to maintain that privilege, to, to, to imprison, to jail, and to even kill. And so while he was a pacifist, from a formal standpoint, he was by no means naive about what he was involved in. Uh, he knew that he was involved in a process that if America ever became the country that she claimed she was constitutionally, and that this world became a world that would be pleasing to God, that some black people were going to have to lose their lives, including him. But he was also emboldened again by, of course, the unmerited suffering of Jesus Christ himself, redemptive suffering of Jesus Christ atoning for the sins of humanity from of course an ontological standpoint but for King he saw something far more in the crucifixion he saw the resurrection of the human family through the crucifixion of one and so what he sought symbolically in the crucifixion what he saw symbolically in the crucifixion is the ultimate sacrifice for the onward march, not only of human civilization, civilization progressing itself, 
gradually to the kingdom of God, but also being a servant of God and seeing Christian stewardship itself as being manifest in one's death. So Paul went back and forth on this line between life and death, um, not only with the number of Christians he persecuted and killed, but how his life was also threatened when he became a Christian. And this duality Paul struggles with through most of his books, the duality between life and death, between the spirit and the flesh, and of course, what does it mean to have the spirit, and how can the spirit manifest itself within the flesh itself, and can it be separated, of course, about as many theologians since the uh, advent of Christian theologians have weighed in on dichotomy between flesh, spirit, and life and death had about as many different interpretations as they have been theologians. But for King, it was clear for him that the Christ event was an event that was about the crucifixion temporarily, but it was ultimately about the resurrection of not just the individual believers spiritually. Of course, here's his, um, his influence by white liberal Protestantism. That it wasn't just a resurrection of the individual spiritually, it was the resurrection of the world morally, ethically, socially, economically, and politically. He understood that in the process of bringing that about, what we theologically term as martyrdom was something that one should not historically see. You shouldn't run out here and look for somebody to blow you away with a bullet in the head when you leave here and think you are engaged in true Christian stewardship. But he did think that martyrdom was something that should be spiritually embraced as a way of life, not necessarily as something that one seeks, but as something that one should understand as a mature thinking Christian will probably or could come his or her way through engagement and struggles that challenge issues that affect people's lives structurally, prevent them from living lives of the full achievement of their humanity. So for King, more so than just about any leader in the history of America for me, this is something that doesn't come out about him. The struggle for human liberation was a spiritual struggle for King because nothing tested the spirit like the transformation of relationships. You know, John Kennedy used to say all the time that progress is a nice sounding word, but it involves change. And the reality is, is that most human beings don't want to change. We want to stay as we are. And so the ultimate challenge to the spirit is change. Because it recognizes first as a mature thinking person that there are problems with the existing situation. And once you recognize that there are problems with the existing situation, both individually and collectively, then really one is pushed, not by matter of choice, but by matter of zeitgeist, by matter of biblical revelation, by matter of spirit to change. And so, fundamentally what the struggle of biblical revelation from Genesis to Revelation and even in our struggle from American history and inception to 2012 has been about, it has been about the ability to embrace change and to deal with the pains that come 
through that change. And that is a very difficult thing for the flesh to do. And because it's a difficult thing for the flesh to do, it is very difficult for the spirit to do as well. So, in that regard, martyrdom for king represented the highest honor of Christian commitment. And he said quite frequently that he was willing to die for the cause of human freedom and that if a person has not found something to die for, he or she is not fit to live. And so that spirit came not only from Ebenezer, it came not only from Daddy King, it came not only from white liberal Protestantism, it came not only from Boston University and Crozer and Morehouse and Benny Mays, but it also came from the spirit that he would maintain that biblical revelation gives us to challenge the existing situation. And we only need to look at its central figure, Jesus Christ himself, to see that example. Thank you very much.